choir, and thank you, Dr. Long, thank you to our musicians. If you have God's Word with you, uh, and I invite you to open to Luke chapter 15. Uh, Luke chapter 15, we're going to read today uh, the rest of that chapter, beginning in verse 11. Uh, now, we won't make it all the way through to the end of the chapter, but we're going to read all the way through just for the context, just to, to get the whole story in our mind. So it'll take us two weeks to get through it, but uh, let's begin in verse 11 and let's read all the way through verse 32. Familiar words to us. It says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pies that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field and as he came he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But, his, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of, our, of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to this portion of your holy and inerrant word, a passage that is so familiar to us, uh, we almost uh, just dismiss it offhand, uh, but a passage that is so dear. And, and lays out for us so clearly the truths of the gospel story, of your mercy, of your grace, of your kindness. So it lays out so clearly who we are. Lord, may this passage not, not be familiar to us, but may it be uh, something that, that drives down to our hearts, that, that changes us. And Lord, the only way that will happen is if you work in us. Lord, I can't preach this in a way that, that would penetrate to those depths. And so, Lord, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you might speak to us. We would see Jesus today. 
And so we ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, again, uh, this parable that is before us, uh, it needs no introduction. Uh, and so today, I'm not going to give us one. I'm just uh, simply going to start by saying uh, that I'm convinced that, that the name that we often give to it, the, the parable of the prodigal son, uh, it really does not do this story the, the justice that it deserves. Now certainly, uh, this is a story about a son who is wayward. Uh, it's a story about a son who leaves, and it's that part of the story that, that seems to penetrate to our hearts the most, right? Uh, in, in this wayward child, we, we see ourselves clearly. We see the reality of who we are. And so it's easy for us to, to stop there. It's easy for us simply to see that son and to say, yeah, that's me, and to move on. But remember there in verse uh, 11, it says that, that this is a, a story about two sons, right? Uh, there's another son, a seemingly faithful son. And I want to submit to you, we're not going to see this till next week, but I really want to submit to you that you can't understand the parable itself if you don't understand that second son. You can't understand the point that Jesus is making here in the context that we saw two weeks ago. If you were here, you remember that Jesus is at the, the table with tax collectors and sinners. And these Pharisees, as they always do, they, they are pushing against that. They, they are upset that that's the, the route that Jesus has taken. These Pharisees who see themselves as faithful followers of God, people who see themselves as having been with God from the beginning, people who are that second brother. And so in order for us to understand really the point that Jesus is making, we can't simply just dismiss that, that second son there. And that's why I read all the way through. Yeah, we won't see it until next week, but we need to have that in our minds. We need to have that context. But still, there's another character in this story, right? There's a third character. Verse 11 again says, There was a father who had two sons. There's a father in this story as well. And friends, what I really want to submit to you today and next week is that this story is a story about a father. It's a story about his love. It's a story about his grace and his mercy to us. Yes, we find ourselves in this story. But the question is, is do we have the father? Do we have the one who is merciful and gracious? And so today, what I want us to do is I want us to begin with this son. I want us to consider a little bit about the father. And then next week, we'll come back and we'll consider the second son and even more about the father. What we're going to see over the course of these two weeks is two sons and a gracious father. So let's look at it together. The first thing that I want you to see today is a father's wayward son. Now again, we're so familiar with these details here that it doesn't seem necessary to go into them in detail, but I don't think it would hurt to consider them closely just, just one more time. So look, don't check out on me here. Don't think, hey, I've got this. I've heard this a hundred times. I don't want to hear it again. Hear it today. Let the, the Holy Spirit work these truths in our hearts again today, okay? 
You remember in verse 12, this younger son, he, he comes to his father and he says, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, in our modern world, I don't think we fully grasp the, the context, the, the weight of what this son is asking of his father here. You know, we live in a time where, you know, people get their inheritances at different points. Maybe they come to a certain age and they get their inheritances. Maybe they ask for it as this son does and the, and the parents freely, gladly give it to them. Maybe they just one day say, hey, here you go. But remember, in this Jewish cultural context, the inheritance, the family, the family unit was everything, right? Now, it wasn't just, just something that, that you asked for. Now, certainly there was a provision in God's law for this, so it wasn't necessarily wrong. But just culturally and normally, what, what did a son do? He lived under the rule of his father. He lived under the authority of this one. He honored his father because the father was the head of the household. And so as this son comes to his father, the first thing he's saying to him is, Father, I don't like your rules. I don't like your authority. I no longer want to live under those things. Then he asked him for the inheritance. And look, we even understand this. What, what is, when's the normal time for a person to receive his inheritance? Well, it's when the person that's giving it dies, right? Well, that was true then, just like it's true now. Maybe even more true then than it is now. And so essentially what this son is saying to his father is, Father, I cannot wait for you to die. I wish you were dead so that I can have my stuff and I can get out of here. In short, basically in every way, this is a, a slap in the face to any Jewish father. And it is a slap in the face to anything that a Jewish family would have been about, right? An inheritance. It was not simply just money that you received. But it was a family legacy, right? This was the land that God had given to your fathers. This is what the father had worked for for years and years and years. And now... His plan was for generations to come. This would be in the family unit. This would continue on. And so this son comes and he says, Father, I don't like you. I don't like my family. Give me these things so that I can take them and I can do with them what I please. He's ready to go. And that's certainly what he does. He, he takes these things from the Father. The Father somewhat surprisingly gives him his inheritance. He goes to a foreign land. And you know what he does there. On this kind of journey of self-fulfillment, he spends all of that inheritance that he had received, it says, in reckless living. You know, the, the older brother later on, he gives us a better idea of just exactly what it is that the son was doing there in the foreign land. Uh, he was doing just whatever in the world he wanted to do, right? He was living by his rules, by, by his plan. Then, of course, what happens? Verse 13, he, he, he loses it all. He has nothing left to show for it. Now, friends, it's difficult not to pause here simply to apply this to the world that we live in, right? We, we read this and we want to look out at the world and we want to see all of those people who in a quest 
to find their true selves. All those people out in the world who, who are trying to live their best life. All those people out in the world who are trying to live by their own rules. By constantly abandoning their faith, by abandoning their families, by living life their own way. We want to take this and we want to say, hey, this is them. Friends, what I want to do here, instead of trying to apply it to the world out there, let's just simply recognize here that, that what we have in this younger son is a picture of fallen humanity. All of fallen humanity. After Genesis chapter 3. What is sin? It's nothing more than us wanting to live our own way. It's nothing more than us saying to God, I don't like your rules. I don't like your authority. I'm going to do this my way. All of us, in a sense, come into this world on a quest for self-fulfillment. We all want to be little G gods. Where does it lead us? Friends, it leads us to the same place that it leads this son. Our, our specific rebellions, they, they may not be the same, but ultimately it always leads us to the same place. It leads us to brokenness. It leads us to a place where we cannot find that self that we search so hard to find. All of our autonomy... All of our self-rule, it leaves us in the lowest place. And that's certainly where it leaves this, this prodigal son. You know, he loses all that, that inheritance that he had gotten. And then, as, as so often is the case, things go from bad to worse. When it rains, it pours, he has no money. And then a famine comes to this foreign land that he goes to. And it says there that he is in need. I would submit to you that that's a loaded two words. He is in need. Certainly, physically, he was in need. He was, he was hungry, right? So hungry, in fact, that he was willing to hire himself out to a Gentile. So hungry, in fact, that he was willing to go and work with pigs and animals that were unclean by his religious customs. So hungry, in fact, that he longed to eat the food that the pigs were eating. Physically, he was in need. Friends, even more than that, where is this younger son now spiritually? He's broken, right? All the plans that he had made, all that he thought he would achieve in this foreign land, all the fun and success and great joy he thought he would have, what does he realize in that moment when he's in that place? gone it's never to be that father who i loathed back in the other land in my home maybe he was right maybe i was wrong maybe i was the problem he finds himself in the lowest place he's utterly alone and i love what philip Ryken says he says he's utterly alone and he's helpless homeless hungry and humiliated. Again, friends, I would say to you, that's always the result of sin. That's always sin's result. That's always the result of our efforts to, to be our own rulers, our own gods. Now, somebody will say to me, well, what about 
those who prosper, those wicked folks out there. We see them on the TV all the time, right? People who don't know God, who don't trust in God, who don't love God, and they seem to have the best life. They seem to be able to do all that they want to do. How is that the case? Well, you remember the psalmist. He, he had this same issue in Psalm 73. He asked the question, why do the wicked prosper? And if you get down to, to verse 16, in, that, in the first 16 verses, he lays out the truth of what the, the uh, wicked's life looks like to him. It all looks great and rosy. But then in verse 16, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discern their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. Now, that was a long passage to read. Did you hear what the psalmist, what, what he, what the conclusion that he came to? He said, there's only one person in heaven and on earth that I need. I may lose all else. The wicked may have everything else, but there's one person that I need. And it is you, O oh Lord. Only you can save. Only you can bring me to glory. The wicked, they will surely perish. It's the result of trying to live for ourselves. And so the question becomes, what do we do? If this is true for us, if this is how we come into the world, if this is the reality of our hearts, in rebellion against God, looking to live our own way, looking to be our own gods, how, how, do, we, how do we come out of this? What's, what's the plan ahead? Notice, in that lowest place, in the pigsty, we might say, this son begins to come to his senses. Now, there's a sermon right there, and I realize we are long into the sermon that we already are preaching, and so I won't continue into preaching that particular sermon. But, but, notice that God wastes nothing. He wastes nothing in your life. Even the pigsty. How was it that the son ended up in the pigsty to begin with? Certainly, he led himself there. But who did he have to go through first before he got there? He had to go through the father. He had to go through the father who gave him his inheritance. And then he went and found himself in the pigsty. Right? God wastes nothing. Even in those lowest places. He uses them for good. And here with this son, he does exactly that. It says he comes to himself. Now again, that's a, that's a loaded statement. There's a lot going on there. But ultimately, what does he have? He has a longing for home. 
He has a longing for his father. Right? That's what God is working in our hearts. Even through the sin, even through the troubles, even through the bad things. I say this with with all reverence. I say this not flippantly or glibly at all. Even through the horrors that we have experienced this week. This is what God is doing. He is pushing us towards himself. He is pushing us to his arms. He's saying, run to me because there's nowhere else to go. Because that's what this son there in the pigsty has figured out. I have nowhere else to go. I have nowhere else to run. Even my father's servants live better than this. And so maybe, just maybe, if I go back to him, maybe he will receive me. Now I want to say to you here that that this repentance, it's not a a master class in, in repentance. Uh, many, many commentators take fault in a lot of what he says here. You know, they suggest to you that, that he still doesn't really understand grace, uh, that he's still looking just to, to get the Father's stuff. He's not really looking for the Father's love, per se. Uh, others will say to you that in his request just to be a slave, that he's trying to work off his debt. I'll be honest with you, that may be true. And so those folks are a lot smarter than me, and so that that may be true. Uh, But I think it may be overthinking it to some degree, right? I'll be honest with you. Just in my own uh, experience of repentance, rarely, well, no, never, is my repentance perfect, right? Rarely is it even what you would call good. Most of the time, when we find ourselves in the place where we are really ready to repent like this son is, what kind of condition are we in? Not very good, right? And so we come to God and we just lay it all out on the line. Well, I feel like that's exactly what this son is trying to do here. He's trying to come to his father and just lay it out on the line. And in doing that, he gets a lot right. First, notice that he hates the position that he's in. And he hates the sin that has got him there. How could he not? He's eating pig food with pigs. Secondly, he acknowledges his sin. Towards who? First, towards heaven. First, towards God. And that's a lesson, again, in and of itself. All sin is chiefly and primarily to God. David understood this in Psalm 51, right? He says, Father, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, Had David only sinned against God? No, he had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against all of these people that were under his charge, all of these Israelites who he was supposed to be leading. And yet he realizes in that moment, chiefly and primarily and always, our sin is an affront to whom? It's an affront to God. And this son, he he realizes that there in the pigsty. But secondly, he also says, I've sinned against the, the maker of heaven and earth, and I've sinned against you, Father. Thirdly, he confesses his complete unworthiness. He says, I'm unworthy to be called your son. He sees himself honestly. That's that's, as much as we need to say. He sees his heart honestly, maybe for the first time, and he realizes, I'm lost. Lost as a goose. And then lastly, fourthly, he looks to the only one who can help. And he looks to him with hope, with hope. Verse 20, again, and he arose and he came to his father. 
I may be again making too much of this, but but that's those are load. That's a little. That's a loaded statement. He realized who he was, and with hope, he got up out of the pigsty and he went back to the only one who he thought could do anything about it. His father. And guess what? When he gets to the father. The father does far more than he ever could have imagined. And so we've seen a father's wayward son. And secondly and finally in this passage, I want you to notice a father's gracious response. A father's gracious response. And you see it there in verse 20 and following. Now, I picture as that walk back home as somewhat agonizing, right? You're trying to work out your speech in your mind, you know, you're thinking, all right, what's the best way to say this? Do I call him Lord? Do I call him Master? Do I call him Sir? And he says, no, I'm going to start with what's true. I'm going to call him Father. And he says, well, what, what do I, how do I proceed uh, even from there? Uh, do I try to give some excuses about why this happened, why I lost all my money? Uh, do I try to blame it on the famine that just came through the land? He says, no, it's just going to be best to, to shoot it straight. I, I've sinned against you. And then he's, he's got to be wondering, what do I ask for here? How do, I, how do I proceed? Do I say, hey, I'm your son. Give me just a little bit more. Says, no, I'll just simply ask to, to be a servant. I'll just ask to, to be a slave in this house. And so I picture him walking along the road, you know, just trying to work all of these things out in his mind. And while he's still a long way off, it says the father sees him. Now, Ben pointed this out, and he did a great job of it. But think of what that implies about the father's love. That he saw him from a long way off. You know, if, if you were not looking for someone to show up, and you saw a person on the horizon, you would just see them and say, hey, there's a person out there, and you would dismiss them and go on about your way, Right? But the fact that he saw him from a distance and recognized his gait, recognized something featurely about him, recognized his son means he was looking for him. He was waiting for this son to come home. Now, the question that has that got to be burning in our minds at this point is why? Why? Why would he look for this son? This son had spit in his face. This son had taken his things and gone. He had ruined the family dynamic. All of the, the neighbors were just going to scorn him if he returned. If he came back, it would only be because he had lost everything, which is the case. There was no reason for him to come back unless he was broken and lost and undone. And so why? Why would the father spend his time looking for this son? If you're a parent here today, uh, then you understand this to some degree or another, don't you? You know, no matter what our kids may do, uh, they are like that sheep and like that coin in the parables before. They are even more precious than that, right? They are precious to us. And so even if they embarrass us, this is not a, anything about my own children, but I'm just saying generally, if they embarrass us, if they... they spit in our face, even if they go to a foreign land, 
What can we not stop doing for those children? Can't stop loving them, right? We may not appreciate what they've done. We may not like the actions that they've taken. But it's very difficult for us to stop loving them. Well, Friends, that's certainly true for, for this father here. Though his son had abandoned him, though his, his love had not stopped. And I want you to notice how it works itself out here in these last few verses. First, it says there that he embraces him. Well, he sees him from a long way off. He goes out to meet him and he embraces him. First, I'm sorry, first, he, he feels compassion, right? What emotion does he feel? Not anger, not revulsion, uh, not even pity per se. Feels compassion, which I looked up, is pity and concern mixed together. And how does that compassion manifest itself? Now, it says he runs out to greet him. And we've covered this many times, but you know in that culture, an old man running was not something that ever happened. Not just simply because old men don't like to run, no offense to any people, but because it was culturally not a thing that they did, right? It was a, a cultural taboo. Men, old men, did not run for anything. And yet here he is running. But, I, but not only is he he's setting aside cultural norms, I also want to say to you that he's setting aside his own pride, right? Think about this. If that was you, and you were on the porch waiting for this particular son to come back. Yes, you may have longed for him to come back, but when you saw him from a long way off, what would you say? I'll tell you what I would say. Say, I'm glad he's back, but he's going to walk his little booty right over here to me. He's going to come all, I'm not going to go out there and meet him. He's going to come all the way over here to me, right? I'm not going to give him the satisfaction of seeing how much I wanted him to come back by going out there and meeting him. His father doesn't do that, right? He sets his pride aside and he runs. And then when he gets there, what does he do? He kisses him. He embraces him. He covers him with his love. He showers him with his love. Again, uh, J.C. Ryle, he says, It should be noted that the father does not say a single word to his son about his wickedness. There is neither rebuke nor reproof for the past nor galling admonitions for the present nor irritation, irritating advice for the future. The one idea that is represented as filling his mind is joy that his son has come home. Friends, what love, what compassion this father has for his child. It doesn't stop there. Finally, after all the hugs and all the kisses, the son, he starts this great speech that he has prepared. But notice, he doesn't get very far, does he? He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be called your son. And that's as far as he gets. That's all he can get out of his mouth. That's all the father wants to hear. It's enough. He says, hey, go get the best robe. Go, go get the, the best shoes. Go get the best ring. And put it on who? Now this is, the, this is where it really rubber meets the road, okay? So if you've checked out, check back in. Who, who does he put it on? Who does he say to put it on? 
Not one of my servants. That's what the, the son had asked to be. Not a slave, which is what he knew himself only worthy to be. He says, put it on my son. My son. This one who had no right any longer to be a son, the father receives him back as his child. And then he says, hey, go get the fattened calf. Let's have a party. It's time to celebrate this son that was lost. Now look, we need to be careful here because the, the correlation of characters, and, and Ben has done some of this, and, and he did a good job of it, but the, the correlation of characters here is not completely one-to-one. You know, as we saw last week, the, the God, the Father that, that we come to is not some old man sitting on a porch hoping for his children to come home. He is the God of all creation that goes out and gets us, right? He is the God of all creation that goes and finds us in the foreign land, that finds his lost sheep, and brings us back. But, but in our actual experience, what we find is that when we repent, as unworthy and empty-handed as we may be, when we repent, this great Father, what does He do? He's there to embrace us. He's there to lavish upon us His compassionate, unmerited love. He's there to give us the best. And what is the best? It's Jesus. He's there to give us his son. And he clothes us, not with the best robe, but he clothes us in Jesus' righteousness. He gives us the gospel. He gives us forgiveness of our sins. Not just, hey, I'm glad you're back. But he separates it from us so that no longer are we those rebellious children that we once were. But we are now sons and daughters adopted into his family. He now makes us his own. Not slaves, not servants, though that's certainly what we should be. He makes us children. And again, the question is why? Well, friends, the only reasonable explanation it's love. It's the only reasonable explanation that I can give you. The love of God for his sinful people. A love that will not let us go. And a love that will surely get us home. Well, that's where we'll stop for today. But having said that, let me ask you. Do you know this love? Do you see yourself in this son? Have you experienced the peace, the joy, the satisfaction that only he can give? Friends, today, maybe for the first time, if you feel his call, if you feel that effectual calling that, that we talked about in our catechism question, let me encourage you. Repent of your sins. Confess your unworthiness. Look to Jesus and find that the one whom you need, he is compassionate, and he is merciful, he is gracious, he is slow to anger, he is abounding in steadfast love. He will take you in his arms, 
And he will shower you with his compassionate love. He will embrace you as his own, as his son, as his daughter. If you are, if you know that love, friends, let me encourage you. Rest in it. Rest in it. We live in a world that is difficult. But here's the truth of who we are if we're resting in Christ. We're sons and daughters. He's got his arms wrapped around us. He will not let us go. And he will get us safely home. Let's pray. Father, as we consider these things, we rejoice in your love for us. We rejoice that we can say, Father, that we can call you our Father, Abba Father. And Lord, we thank you for your kindness, your mercy to us. Certainly, we have rebelled against you in so many ways. We have gone our own way, looked to our own hearts, our own desires, just like this son that we have considered. Yet you love us, and you have rejoiced at our return. You have even brought us home through your spirit, through your work in our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that you would just continue uh, to guide us, that you would get us safely home. Lord, if there's someone here today who does not know this love, Pray that you would not give them rest until they are resting in you. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your son, the true son, our elder brother, uh, who has given his life, given himself, so that we might find redemption. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. As we conclude our wonderful service together, we invite you to sing hymn number 465.